thank you for the opportunity to sing praises to you, to lift our voices, to sing truth, Lord. And Father, as I stood there singing, I'm amazed at the depth of what we sing to you. Singing worship to you is not for those who want to play around with Christianity. These truths are solid and deep. We sing about commitment to you, commitment to your truth. So, Lord, we thank you that the songs we sing match the word we preach. So, Lord, may we sing with confidence in our God, confidence that you want us to live a certain way that brings glory to you and joy to our own lives. Lord, as we work our way into 1 Corinthians 7, there will be challenges to all of us. Married, single, divorced, widowed, everyone will be challenged by this text. And so may we look at this and value this instruction, learn from it, take it serious that you have a design for our relationships. And Lord, where we failed, may we repent. May we need to grow, Lord, may we submit to you in that growth. We pray you would strengthen us as we study this challenging text together. Lord, we think of those who can't be with us. Maybe many are online right now. Some sick from COVID or coughs and colds or whatever it may be. Lord, strengthen them. Cause them to return to us soon. Be with those who cannot attend anymore. We just don't have the strength. So we pray that you would give them strength to finish their life well, Lord. Thank you for our missionaries. Continue to pray for them. Thank you for our involvement. We're so grateful to have a relationship with them. Not just giving money, Lord, but partnering for the gospel's sake to go around the world. We ask that you bless them and strengthen them. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 7. We will attempt to get through the first seven verses this morning. I've entitled the sermon, The Joy-Robbing Dangers of Self-Righteousness. The joy-robbing dangers of self-righteousness. We would not believe how they sneak into our marriages and into our relationships, and this text will certainly challenge us. Asceticism was a real problem in the first century. It came along with this agnostic idea that we're just spirit and matter doesn't matter because that's just sinful and, and, and we're above all of that. And so asceticism set in the early church, and it became to be a real problem. A good definition of asceticism is the practice of severe self-discipline, abstinence from all forms of, of indulgence, and typically associated with religious reasons. Well, any form of self-righteous living will rob you of joy particularly if you are trying to live in a self-righteous way in order to please God or set yourself above others. And it doesn't just rob your joy, it robs joy of those around you. This is where we see where legalism is so dangerous within the church. Legalism attempts to gain righteousness through one's works and mandates others to follow your example in order that you may gain approval of some sort or gain righteousness in some way. Legalism carries a, a form of control. You want people to do as you want them to do, and you've set the standard. 
You have not maintained the biblical standard, or maybe you have taken the biblical standard and you forced it upon people in order to gain approval of some sort. Well, the Apostle Paul begins 1 Corinthians 7 by quoting from their own letter, I believe. And I read this first verse this way. Now, concerning the things which you wrote about me, and there's what I have, how I have it marked in my Bible, quote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, it's clear that there was a small but very influential group that had risen in the Corinth church here. And they were pressuring this church into a stronger ascetic or self-righteous way to live. And their attack now is on marriage and singles and widows and divorced people. Paul does not want anything to do with it. In fact, he wants to challenge it. See, the problem was, instead of having this godly exchange with this apostle who loved them, who cared for them, who brought the gospel to them, they instead seek to make their own statements. In fact, they take exception at Paul's positions on morality and marriage and so forth. Now, remember, the Corinth church had a love for wisdom, human wisdom. There's a piety that came with it. They, they wanted more knowledge. They held um, the great orators of the day in high regard, and they looked down on the Apostle Paul, and in the end, they devalued the gospel. So remember who we're dealing with as Paul answers this statement. Paul now begins to take up these matters. You'll remember, in the first six chapters, he's responding to Chloe, who had been there and said, uh, Paul, there's a few problems there. And then he has heard the things that are going on there, immorality, a man living with his uh, mother-in-law, um, uh, legal problems going on, suits and immorality within the church, and he's dealing with those things. But now, now in 1 Corinthians 7, he comes and takes up several matters, and the reason we know it is he keeps using this phrase all the way the rest of the book, now concerning. He's now responding to their letter. First matter that he takes on is marriage. <laughs> he takes on marriage and intimacy. Marriage and intimacy was under attack from this ascetic group, trying to make themselves actually more spiritual by denying themselves a God-given gift to marriage. They take on singleness. They challenge singles not to pursue marriage. They're trying to keep singles to stay single because they need to be above the weakness of marriage. They go after the divorce and the remarriage and they go after the widow. So Paul's taking these things on in this text. I think Paul has many concerns here. He knows the problems in Corinth. He, he knows the immorality that he's had to deal with in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And now on top of that, if that wasn't difficult enough, he has to deal with a self-righteous, pious position against a God-given pleasure that he has granted marriage because people are now saying, oh, you shouldn't have any sexual relationships. Be above that. This church is a mess. But they're a good view of today's church in a lot of ways. And we learn a lot from 1 Corinthians of how to deal with these things. So here's what I believe 
the Corinthian position is. This is an ascetic group within Corinth's church. They're consisting of married people who believe that you should dissolve your marriage or at least within the marriage relationship, abstain from sexual relationship with, with each other while putting pressure on the engaged, the single, single, and the widow not to remarry. Now, this group, this group believed that all of the immoralities of chapter 5 and 6 were below them. They, they believe they've reached this spiritual level that others haven't. They've come to this brand of spiritual completeness. I, I, I'm still working on this, but I think it already leads them to the point why Paul has to deal with resurrection in chapter 15 because they see themselves already resurrected because of their spiritual stance. And they actually deny the physical resurrection of the body. We'll get to that more when we get to chapter 15. But here's, here's what they're doing. This is what they believe. They, they believe marriage and sex and singleness and divorce and remarriage all belongs to an age that's passing away. This is, we're beyond this. We have a spiritual state beyond this. And all these relationships are meaningless. Uh, their love for knowledge and human wisdom has, has caused them to stray and, and perhaps... They see themselves as greater in their spiritual life, and they deny the physical life. And so they begin to show this pious, self-righteous, ascetic lifestyle, and they're hurting the faith of many. In the two preceding chapters, Paul has, has dealt with everything. He's dealt with incestuous relationships, lawsuits, sexual immorality. He's challenged and condemned the moral laziness of the Corinth church, striving to help them please the Lord. And now, now he, he's now going to take on this subject of marriage and singleness and intimacy. And this letter, the Corinth church, seems to make a statement. They're rejecting the, the, the counsel of the Bible, of what the Bible says about marriage, and they have now made their statement to Paul, and Paul is going to take it on. And I want to address this in four different thoughts this morning. How Paul attacks this false teaching of marriage and intimacy and singleness. Look at number one. Paul stands in opposition to a self-righteous, ascetic lifestyle because it opposes the plan of God. Because it opposes the plan of God. Notice they say their statement, now concerning the things that uh, Paul says, the thing, concerning the things that you have written to us about, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. Now, doubtlessly, there were many letters that went back and forth between Paul and the church. We know he was in prison at times. He wrote lots of letters to churches. Paul was writing all the time. He was a pastor. He cared for churches. And if he couldn't be there in person, he would pin down his thoughts and, of course, some of these were inspired. We know that there's at least four. There's, there's reference to at least four letters. This one, 2 Corinthians, and two others. And two of these are inspired, and then your Bible today. You see in chapter 5, verse 9, if you just look across the page there, he says, I wrote to you. And so he's referring to another letter. So these, these letters no longer exist, thank the Lord, because someone would try to do something with them. But the, there's... there's 
there's an understanding that they're responding now to this previous letter, and Paul is addressing this. Letters were interesting in this time. You didn't stick them in the snail mail. Somebody carried them. And so he would often give them to Titus or someone, and someone would carry these letters, and then they would be read to the churches. But their responses were done the same. 1 Corinthians 16, 17 says, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanos and Fortunas and Archaicos because they have supplied what has been lacking. So these men brought this offering that he challenges about, and most likely they brought the letter that they had written back to Paul and delivered to Paul, and so Paul now has this letter. But it's the second half of verse 1 that is the concerning statement. Quote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. You have to decide whether this statement is from Paul or from the church. And the answer is so important because if it's from Paul, and and for many, many years, I have a ton of commentaries, and I've actually found commentaries that say it's from Paul, there can come great abuse from this. And I think that's what's happened in the church down through the years, even into some of the Puritans. Well, the answer is so important here because we need to understand what this term means, don't touch a woman. Now, the Bible often writes difficult things in polite phrases, don't they? Here, this polite phrase is for sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife or between man and woman. And it's actually an Old Testament term. It's used in several places. One in Genesis chapter 20, verse 6. And God says he caused Abimelech not to be able to touch, to have sexual relationship with Sarah. God protected Sarah in that very, very difficult place that her husband had put her in. It's also used of Ruth. In Ruth chapter 2, Boaz puts a hedge of protection on Ruth as she gleams in the field so that she would not be sexually attacked is the Hebrew word there while she gleaned in Boaz's field. So if this statement was from Paul now, if Paul says it's not good for a man to touch a woman, then Paul would be teaching some kind of celibacy, some kind of denial of the God-given joys of marriage. If it's his own authority, Paul now has a problem. He would have to reject much of what he's taught. It's Paul who took Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 throughout his epistles and describes the relationship of marriage, procreation, and intimacy. Paul knew that God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. Genesis 2.18, he uses that. Paul knew that God ordered mankind to fill the earth and procreate in Genesis 1.28. So if God were for celibacy and marriage, it would prove that he was against his own covenant of marriage. And think about some of the problems with that. The Abrahamic promise, how does that get fulfilled? If celibacy and marriage is what God wants for some higher spiritual plane. And then go just a little bit farther. How does that seed coming from, from Adam, coming down through Abraham, ever get to the cross? There's all kinds of problems with this view of celibacy within marriage. And look, Paul is not against marriage. He's not against the uh, the blessings of marriage that God gives to married couples. 
His own instruction paints this beautiful picture in Ephesians 5 of, of a husband and wife and their relationship to Christ and the church, this declaration of oneness that we have. So Paul, Paul held a very high view of marriage. And he held a very high view of all the blessings and joy and love that comes with a God-given intimacy of marriage. John Calvin, writing on this passage, said this, For God so ordered in the beginning that a man without a wife was a half a man. And as it were, and felt himself lacking in help which he particularly needed. And the wife was, as it were, the completion of the man in every way. Therefore, whatever evil or trouble, here's what Calvin says, there is in marriage springs from the corruption of God's institution. And that's what man does all the time. Look what the world is attempting to do with the institution of marriage. Man corrupts what God gives. And here he gives such beautiful intimacy that comes with a marriage. Another problem that could arise from the fact if Paul made this statement is that he would be promoting some kind of self-righteous, uh, ascetic life. But Paul doesn't do anything like that. In fact, as, you, as we'll see as we go through the rest of the book of Corinthians, he is always attacking asceticism. Oh, we don't eat meat from idols. And this is, where this is what they're coming, because he's going to write concerning this and concerning that. He's taking on these self-righteous view that this select group within the core church keeps saying, oh, we don't do this. We're, we're above that. And Paul, throughout his writing, speaks of asceticism and self-righteousness and, and, and rejects it. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as this, do not handle, do not taste, here's a word, do not touch. Which all refer to things destined to perish in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. But rather, but these matters which have, to be sure, listen to this, are an appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. This is Paul's teaching. He writes to Timothy, who's pastoring the church he planted in Ephesus. He says in chapter 4, but the Spirit explicitly says in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. They'll pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Okay, now what he's about ready to tell us is from the demonic world. So what does he tell us? Listen to this. By means of hypocrisy, liars sear their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. See, Paul was not ever teaching an ascetic life of pulling back from everybody, raising yourself in a spiritual position before those that are around you. He denounced that throughout his entire ministry. So we know, we keep understanding, this is most likely a statement and possibly even a quote in actual language that Paul is putting in this, not Paul's belief that a man should not touch a woman. Now, I believe Paul realizes that there's a group here. 
I believe he realizes there's a group within this Corinth church. They're, they're seeking to express their higher spirituality with these negative attitudes towards material things. Sex and relationships were above those. I, I, I thought I would write down, <laughs> these are my words, what I thought maybe was in this letter. After studying this and thinking through the position of the Corinthian church, maybe the letter read something like this, and Paul pulled out an excerpt. Since you yourselves, since you yourself, Paul, are unmarried and are not actively seeking marriage, and since you have denounced immorality in your letter, would we not be better off to never engage in sexual intercourse at all, knowing we have entered a new realm of spirituality, and like angels are neither marrying nor given to marriage, and our bodies count as nothing because they are sinful matter, and we are truly just spirit beings, why should we gauge in such sinful activities as sexual intercourse? Starting to understand this verse? Starting to understand why it's written there and why, why it's such a difficult passage at times? Because if you miss that interpretation, you start teaching the wrong truths. And that's happened in the church down through time. So I believe there's a combination of rejecting God-given joy and responsibility of marriage with a com combining with this self-righteous, higher spirituality that I think they have, they think they have attained. Now, Paul will certainly encourage the gift of singleness. We're going to get into that particularly next week. And he especially is against immorality. But this Corinth statement doesn't justify celibacy for the married person. And to suggest, and listen, their suggestion and what they believe, most theologians believe, is they're suggesting that even married people should divorce and get out of marriage because they have reached some kind of spiritual high and Paul condones none of this. Therefore, Paul does not see their statement as a higher good, and this is what he's at. He knows this is joy-robbing legalism, and he's going to deal with it. Look at point two here. God designed marriage and gifted a male husband and a female wife with sexual intimacy. God designed marriage and gifted a male husband and a female wife with sexual intimacy. Well, look at verses 2 through 4, but right as you look at it, notice the very first conjunction here. I think most translations use the conjunction but here, and it's clearly adversative, isn't it? Meaning Paul's going to confront their statement right away. He says, here's their statement. I'm taking it on right away. We're not messing around with this. You leave this sinful thought here, it'll take root, and it'll destroy people's marriages. And he has nothing to do with it. He's going to take it on right away because he wants to deal with this false movement that's within Corinth, and he wants to show that their asceticism is dangerous. Now, Paul's very well aware of, of the morality problems in Corinth, right? He's dealt with the incestuous relations of chapter 5. He's dealt with fornication. He's talked about sin is like leaven. He's talked about the body is the temple of God. He's, he's talked about the dangers of joining yourself to someone outside of your marriage. is like joining yourself to a prostitute. He's been very explicit on this out. And not to mention that he's spoken about coveting and theft and, and these hidden sins of reviling and so forth. 
And so he, he's always challenging on the immorality. Paul knows the dangers of immorality. There's, outside of Christ, there's no one who challenges the church more in the writings of what sexual immorality will do to your life. In fact, Paul probably has the single greatest statement to show that if you continue in it, how will you ever know that you're an inheritor of the kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. That statement is an outstanding statement. Don't you know that none of these, as he goes down to this list, and half of it is sexual immorality, and then he deals with hidden sins such as covetousness and so forth, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he reminds him, he's quick to remind them of the power of God to change some of you and wash your sins away and sanctify you and justify you. Chapter 2, I mean, the second book, chapter 12, Paul is concerned that God is going to have him deal with this stuff again. In fact, he uses the word in, I think, verse 21, that he says, I'm afraid God will humble me, humiliate me again, because I have to deal with your sexual sin that you haven't dealt with. See, he sees this as difficult. He reminds them that there's people there that have not repented of these impurities. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 3, but the immoral and the Im, um, impure, any impurity or greed must not be even named among us as Christians, right? Colossians 3, we're to die, put to death in our earthly bodies, immorality, impurity, impurities, and passions and evil desires and greed, which amount to idolatry. Paul knows this. And so he, he knows what, they're so worried and I think what it is, this is a group, possibly, many people believe, possibly formed by some leading women within the church. He knows the dangers of immorality. But he's not taking that on because he's already taken that on in 5 and 6. Now he's taking on the destruction of marriage that they're trying to do. And so he begins to jump into this. Now, in order to confront the statement, Paul has to lay out this amazing outline, Right? So what he's going to do through 2 through 4 here, he's going to lay out an outline. And as I read this, as I read this 2 through 4 to you, I want you to remember that God's view is high and right. When we read statements about scriptures, and right here in the context of marriage, he is going to give us the high view of marriage. Many have settled for the low view. God's word doesn't give us the low view. You understand what I'm talking about? He gives us the high view of marriage, what God has gifted us with. And so in this outline, you'll see where he sets the bar in front of us. It's God's bar, but he also is the first to remind us that we're able to do this through the Spirit and through the Word of God. Look with me at two, verses 2 through 4. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, it's each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duties to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now here in this outline, you'll see three individual statements that make up a, a unified view of of a biblical marriage with biblical intimacy. Notice this first statement is found in 
Verse 2, each man has his own wife, each woman has her own husband. Now, this is important here. You can see so many truths that must be dealt with here. One notice that he doesn't use the word for husband and wife in the front part of this challenge. He uses the word man and woman. It's that way in the Greek. There's a different word for husband and wife, but not open it up. He makes it very clear that each man, each woman. He wants to set clear that there is a design, a God-given design for males and for females. It, it flies in the face of where the world's going with marriage, isn't it? This is for man, and this is for woman. This isn't for man and man. This isn't for woman and woman. This isn't for man and beast. This isn't for any of those things that the world's guarding and trying to protect. It is for man and woman. Now notice also in this verse that he does add the role of husband and wife. He changes terms as he goes forward. Each man has his own wife. Each woman has her own husband. And so now these terms come out. These are roles given by God to glorify God. He gives the role husband. He grants the role wife. They're unique roles. We've said this many times from this pulpit. We see husbands and wife as equal but different. Right? God has asked me to bring a role to participate in a role, according to the scriptures, to bring him glory as a male husband. He's asked my wife to bring glory to God through a female wife. They're unique roles. They're not less. They're not greater. They're unique roles that God gets all the glory. This is why it's so, so uh, disturbing what the world has done. So he's clarifying. This is a man and a woman. This is a husband and wife. And then notice that Marriage is sacred between these two. There's, a, there's an exclusivity here, isn't there? Each man is to have his own wife. You remember when we were in five and six and talking about the things that were going on? I mean, men would have several wives. And if that wasn't bad enough, they would have little young men, little young boys that they would have terrible, godless relationships with in Corinth. Paul says, let me be clear here. This is an exclusive relationship. I've given you a wife, husband. Take care of her. This is profound, isn't it? Wife, I've given you a husband. Notice this verbs there, has and have. Back in chapter 5, he says, it's been told to me that a man has his mother-in-law. He's the same verb. See, there's a, there's a sense of responsibility to the gift. Men are supposed to have their own wives. They've been given a gift from God. It's a gift that needs love and gratitude and, and care. This is, this is something God gave to you men. She's not to be shared with anyone else. And you are not to share anything that God gave you with anyone else but her. It's monogamous, isn't it? It's exclusive. 
It's, it's a statement of, of how precious this is, and yet God honors it. So these guys in Corinth who are saying, oh, don't be married. In fact, get divorced. God, Paul's right away going, no, no. God gave a man a wife. Don't you dare, as Jesus says, take it away. Let God, what God has put together, what? Let no man separate. Or you want to go King James, put asunder. <laughs> Look at the next statement. Statement two comes from verse three. The husband must fulfill his duties to his wife. The wife must fulfill her duties to her husband. Again, husband and wife, male and female, God is setting the goal for marriage. There's no other room for anything else. Never has been since Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Matthew 19 as Jesus spoke. There's never been any change of God's mind of what marriage looks like. It's always male and female and a gift from God to each other. Now notice these two words in this phrase. Um, well, one word, but translated different several translations. The word duty. NASB, which I'm reading out of here, uses the word duty. I think ESV actually translates out the meaning of the word, and they call it conjugal rights. Those who have ESV, you see that in there? What they've done is they've trans out the, translated out the meaning of the word. So we know that this is talking about, about intimacy. And here, inspired, Paul writes through this inspiration for us to see the intimacies of married life and here Paul declares that both the husband and wife should fulfill their role towards one another. It's very clear, isn't it? And notice this. It stresses equality in the statement, right? The husband must fulfill his duty to the wife. The wife must fulfill her duty to her husband. There's equality here. There's responsibility here. You know, one of the things I love about this it tells you that romance doesn't fall on male or female. It falls on both. Guys, some of you are pitiful when it comes to romance. I mean, think about it. When we study romance, often it's the gals who do all this. No, no. There's a responsibility that we pursue romance, each and every one of us. Male or female, husband or wife, we pursue that romance. See, God gave this gift of intimacy to this marriage, and it's not to be just one-sided. And notice in the text, there's not even a hint of celibacy in this. It's anything but celibacy, right? It's actually very clear, and some of us are a little embarrassed as we go through this. Because <laughs> it's that, that poignant, isn't it? Notice that Paul stresses that the husband should not demand of his wife, but is rather an obligation is the idea. There's an obligation to her. Now that can sound cold, but, but you and I know when our relationships are right with God how sweet that obligation is. And vice versa. He's to meet her needs with gentleness and love and consideration of her circumstances. First Peter Five or seven says, Husbands, be a student of your wife. She's a weaker vessel. And again, I've talked about this many times. It's not because she's not stronger. She might be <laughs> physically stronger. 
But because of her position, she's agreed with God to submit to her husband. She has made herself vulnerable. And so here there's, a, there's an intensity to this husbands be considerate, be gentle of her circumstances. So often this failure leads to so much hurt. But notice, wives likewise. They should extend to her husband, this gift of her love. It should, she should extend this to him. There's a gift here that's been given to her, and she's to give this gift to her husband. See the word fulfill and duty in here. The Greek word, it's an interesting word, and why God chose it here is fascinating. It denotes a payment of debt. I wrestled with that for a little while. So sexual intimacy is debt, I don't think that's what it is. I think it's a response to God given humans, those created in his image, a uniqueness of sexual intimacy. It's not like the animal world where a certain time of year an animal comes into season and then they breed and they keep the breed going and so forth and it's done and that buck runs off and never sees her again. That's not. (laughs) This is actually extremely special because God gave it to humans. So there's a fulfillment of it. There's, there's this getting this, this great gift and responding it correctly. I, I love the ring, the ring part of the ring ceremony part of the wedding. I love when I grab the ring off of a, a young man that's about ready to slip it on his bride and I'll say, give me that ring will stand there before God and their friends and them standing right in front of me, and I'll, I'll hold that ring. And before they put it on each other's fingers, I remind them that this is a commitment. This ring says, I will be faithful to that woman. I am committed to her in my mind and in my body. I belong to her. See, this is what Paul's getting at. This is what he sees that if this ascetic, self-righteous teaching goes on, this will be forfeit, forfeited. And marriage will become, well, you know, we've reached this uh, spiritual nirvana, so I really don't need marriage anymore. And all kinds of destruction will come with that. And so we have a sense of belonging to each other. Piper said this, marriage without sex is not only unnatural, but it's expressly forbidden. It's a rejection of unity and oneness that God has commanded marriage to be. Marriage without godly intimacy is a strong warning to you. It's warning you of something. There's something wrong. And we're not talking about physical problems of maybe you're going through some treatment or something's happened. We're We're not talking about that talking about fully capable people who who don't embrace this God-given joy and blessing. It's a warning that there's a problem here. This is what Paul's talking about in the context here. He issues no command of some kind of ascetic living within the bounds of marriage. Paul's discouraging these Corinthian Christians from from their rejection of their spouse and, and living in some kind of abstinence of, of, of intimacy. 
Look, look at the third statement, verse 4. This is interesting. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What do you notice first off? The order switched. You see that? It's been man and husband and wife and uh, a woman and wife and husband and wife and so forth. But all of a sudden in this third statement to round out the unity of sexual intimacy within a marriage, he switches the order. Now, I, I think what happens, this is my thoughts here, but I think it's further evidence that there's some, there's those leading women that have risen up and have taken some kind of authority over the church in this area. And they're pushing abstinence within marriage and even pushing divorce or, or at least refrain from any sexual relationship within your marriage. And so Paul, in this statement, goes right after him, right after him. Wives, I'm going to move you to the front here because I think this is where this is coming from. Now, I have to be so careful. So I want to be so sensitive as I go through this. Because what happens is when as pastors and counselors that we deal with these issues, is people come into our office and their experience is so much greater than the Scriptures. I wish I had a dime for every time I've heard, you don't understand. As though I can take a passage of Scripture and make it say what it doesn't say. Well, do you want to know what the Bible has to say? Is that what you're here or are you just trying to get me to believe your side? Do you want to know what the Bible says? And so I know that there's all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of issues that go on, but Paul wants you to understand that God's view is just opposite of this ascetic, this, this self-righteous position. He, he actually is placing sexual relationship within the marriage in a much higher plane than the culture has or the, even the church in Corinth has. Paul sees the marriage bed as a demonstration of unity and oneness. I think nothing hurts a pastor more or a counselor more is when you see oneness broken because of sin. All of this points to oneness. It points to a husband and a wife that they belong together in oneness for the glory of God. The doctrine of oneness is, is something you and I married or unmarried, should look into deeper regularly. God loves oneness. The night before his death, Jesus says, Oh, Father, because oneness goes beyond sexual intimacy. Oh, Father, make them one as you and I are. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a doctrine that floods throughout our entire life. Notice in the text he uses the word Authority. Paul's revealing a very deep understanding of marital life here than what Corinthians had grasped at this point. This Greek word for authority is a beautiful word, but it gives the understanding in this context that the, spouse, the spouses have mutual authority over each other. One not dominant over the other. They have a mutual authority in the relationship to giving each other's bodies to them as far as the marriage is concerned and as long as the marriage is concerned. Now, 
listen, certainly day to day we understand that we are to give ourselves to the Lord. Right? Romans chapter 12, we're to give our mind and heart and soul and bodies to the Lord as an offering that's sacrificed and pleasing to God. Right? We know that. We're to take care of this gift. But within the biblical confines of marriage, the spouse's body belongs to the married partner and no one else. This is, this is what hurts. And if you talk to somebody who has been abused by adultery, it's so hard. Because what was only theirs, that person gave it to someone else. And in fact, what they did is they defied God to his face in that relationship. And the, and the consequences of, is the destruction of trust and care and oneness that other person was attempting to give. And so Paul says, look, it's an authority that you mutually have together. Protect it together. This is a loving sexual expression within marriage. And it's not an option. (laughs) It's for life. It's certainly not just for procreation. Some of the Puritans even taught that. It's much more than that. Sex is, is far greater than physical act because God created it. And he gave it as an expression and experience in the deepest selfless act to human love. He gave it to humans to love in such a way. He designed it for us. He created it for us. And he meant it to be a bond that knits you and your spouse together and is never to be used as a wedge or a tool of manipulation. It's a gift from God. And Paul's laying out the understanding of something that's very sensitive, something that is, 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 is kept between a husband and wife, and he's laying it out in black and white almost 2,000 years ago so we don't forget what biblical sexual relationship is about. Now, third, God designed a oneness for marriage that prayer strengthens and Satan attacks. Look at verse 5 with me. God designed a oneness for marriage that prayer strengthens and Satan attacks. Verse 5, stop depriving one another. Except by agreement for a time. You know what's going on. You know the scene. Think about this ascetic and self-righteous uh, group that's risen up telling people not to have intimacy in their marriage. In fact, you should divorce or you shouldn't have any relationship. Remember, think about that. He says, stop depriving one another. But here he gives an exception for the agreement of, for time so that you may devote yourself to prayer, come together again, a very, very intimate term there, so that (laughs) Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as he begins this verse here in this part of the letter, he uses an imperative, stop depriving one another. Paul's clearly indicating that there's some that are doing that. This is happening in a church. There's some depriving each other of their marital rights. The main verb denotes, here's, listen to this, it denotes stealing and robbing. When someone within a marriage that is perfectly healthy says they love Jesus Christ, 
Paul is saying if you choose for some kind of ascetic reason because you think you're better than others or whatever reason that may be and you deprive your partner, you are robbing them of what God wants you to share with that other person. See, Paul becomes unusually personal in this verse, doesn't he? He's tackling very intimate matters, isn't he? But this is because of the seriousness of sin, of self-righteousness, and the damage it was doing to marriages in this first century. So Paul's, again, clarifying to the Corinthians that your statement is not good for, touch, not good for a man to touch a woman does not apply to marital situations. Absolutely. In singleness, yeah, absolutely. We'll talk about how God gifts and grants strength to single people. We'll get into that in time here. Now notice he does give an exception. Except by agreeing for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Now, notice Paul does allow for some kind of abstinence right here within the marital relationship, but he has three conditions to it. What? Number one, first, look at this. If both husband and wife agree to. So there may be a time where he says, and look, he's, he's trying to get people to exercise the God-given marriage that, he, that God's gifted with them. So he says there, there may be a time, but here it is. It's an exception needs to be made for times of prayer. There's an agreement. Notice he says there's an agreement here. Husband and wife agree together. Second, if both agree that the absences is for just for a limited time. This isn't permanent. Remember, they're thinking permanent. Well, I'm going to be higher and more spiritual because I have... I have Chosen abstinence. Look how spiritual I am. He says, no, it's for an agreement between the two of you, and it's only for a limited time. And then third, he says, it's for, it's for prayer. Now again, brothers and sisters, these are marks of a biblically healthy marriage. These are people that have learned to die to self. They truly seek true love, agape love for one another. They desire to please God in all aspects of their marriage, even including intimacy. And it's such a great question. Does your intimacy within our marriage, is it pleasing to God? Have you thought about that? Or is it always about you? See, our walk with Christ and his word should influence every area of our life. And when we don't walk with Christ and we don't believe his word, there are particular sins that expose even intimate and sensitive areas. And they limit you what God has for you with your spouse. I know this is one big giant counseling session going on here. I I get it. The pastors don't want you to suffer. They want you to enjoy what God has given you. When a husband and wife walk with God individually, they live in a spiritual sink with one another. They live in a spiritual oneness that is so much joy. Um, and and, and I, I, I want that, right? We don't always generalize marriage isn't perfect. But oh, we know when it is perfect, when there's this oneness of love for the Lord, our love for each other increases. They go hand in hand. Now notice this word except by agreement. The word means that there's an idea of harmony here. We get the word harmony from this Greek word here. Is your marriage, is your intimacy in harmony with one another? 
Meaning you, when you enjoy the gift of marriage, do you seek to be harmonious in it? You seek to care for her, and she keeps, seeks to care for you in it. So Paul's instructing husbands and wives to make a harmonious decision, center that decision on greater communication with God. So if you're going to take a, a respite from your relationship, you're going to do it so that you can center your relationship with God in prayer. Now, how does this work out? Because I don't think Gina and I have ever done this. <laughs> but I think we have in some ways, and let me explain. You all know when times of prayer come, often it's because there's a, there's a crisis that's happened. And, and maybe you've suffered um, in some special way. Or, or someone you love is suffering. Or maybe a child has walked away from the faith or is going through some deep struggle or you're in some kind of financial, financial destitution of some things. And, and it causes you, think about this, it causes you to fall on your knees and beseech God because your heart is broken over someone or something that's going on in your life. And you and your wife fall on your knees and you begin to pray and, and ask God for help. And I don't think during those times, and if you do this, you've got a problem, that while you're seeking God, your mind is off into some kind of sexual intimacy hang-up. See, we do this, don't we? Anybody have somebody in their life that doesn't know Jesus, that you're broken over them? Have you been on your knees praying for them? See, it captures you. That time with God and that time in prayer captures you. And that time you set other things aside, including intimacy, you set other things aside because you're pleading with your Savior. You're pleading with your God in a time of need. See, I think that's what Paul's talking about. Does that make sense? That's how a Christian operates with this. But notice it's temporary arrangement. It's temporary. God wants us to enjoy one another. And again, there's a perfect setting here of marriage. This is what God talks about. This is what God's designed for marriage. And it's, it's high and it's beautiful. And look, doubtlessly, there's those in here that have hurt each other. There's those in here who won't forgive one another. And then they don't reconcile. And intimacy is all but lost. Doubtlessly, there's somebody here hearing this that's going through this. No one in the marriage, or at least both of them, don't want to die to self. No one's willing to love like Christ loved us. No one's willing to humble themselves. No one's willing to seek godly counsel for their marriage. They just want somebody to line up on their side, and so it just becomes gossip. Look, verse 5 has this point that you come back together. But so many can't. And so what happens next is Satan now has a foothold in your marriage. So sin never confessed. Repentance never sought. They never come back again together. They never enjoy the fruit of biblical marriage. And in the end, Satan leads both of them to all kinds of temptations. Now the context of sexual sin here, he doesn't want somebody to fall into sexual sin, but the list is endless, right? People fall into a lack of contentment. They, they, they start to think the worst of people. Bitterness sets in. The godless example to the next generation now repeats over and over and over with divorce. It's a warning, isn't it? Piper on this passage said this. Let me be clear about something. Satan didn't create sexual desire. God did. <laughs> 
He just wants to rob it. He wants to misuse it. See, God gave married couples a strong desire for intimacy. And when we mishandle the gift, we destroy that or misuse it. And then those who do the destroying think that this person should just come swinging around when you've been chiseling away at the foundation of love for years. This takes a deep, abiding love for the Lord Jesus Christ to heal. He wants you to trust him and to live a life of oneness. Satan's whole aim is to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your children's view of marriage. He wants to destroy everything. That's his goal and Paul's warning. (laughs) Warning against this. The unmarried, Satan's doing his best to get you to pursue sexual desires outside of marriage. Because he never wants you to have this. Married, He wants you to be self-centered and pursue your own sins so that you don't taste the depth of grace and truth. That's what he wants. The goodness of God is greater. The goodness of God gives us sexual desires that are meant to bring glory to God and pleasing to our spouse. They actually show and point towards the beauty of the gospel and our relationship with our own Savior. It's intimate. It's oneness, isn't it? MacArthur said this, we play a pivotal role with our spouses as we live lives that are passionate for Christ and his word. This will often extend into very passionate physical relationships with one another and our oneness will be strengthened. This is not why I think I'm going to read the Bible so I can have better sex. Loving Jesus makes everything better. Loving and believing the word makes everything better. Is it easy? No. Anybody married in here? It's hard, isn't it, at times? It makes it better. We find joy in difficult times. See, Satan will use anything to ruin the gift from God. I plead with you to take verse 5 serious here, brothers and sisters. Satan's already got the world. (laughs) He's He's after Christians. And yes, I agree, your situation may be extremely difficult that you're in. But do you have a plan? Do you have a biblical plan to honor God with your marriage? Do you have a biblical plan to get back where you departed? You might say, well, I'm just waiting on the other person. Well, that might be some truth to that. But do you have a plan to honor God as a legally married person that will bring glory to him and make reconciliation possible. Too many people don't even have a plan to honor God in this. I've got to finish up here. My time has got away from me. Last thought, and we'll come back to this next week, is the gift of love that grants contentment in all circumstances. Let me just read this verse, and then I want to close with a passage of Scripture. I'm sorry for the length today. Verse 6 says, By this I say, by way of concession and not a command. Paul's not 
commanding you to be married like these, were com- these people were commanding not to be married or not to have intimacy. He's, he's not commanding people to go get married. In verse 7, he says, I wish that all men were as I, right? However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other, and he says, look, I'm not commanding you to be married. I'm not commanding you to go get married so you can practice the sexual intimacy. I'm I'm telling you that in your marriage, you should do this. And then he says, look, each person, everybody in this room, each has their gift from the Lord. You may be widowed in here. That's a gift from God. I know it's hard. But he's gifted you to be single right now. If you're married, he's given you the gift. If you're legally married, he's given you the, the gift of marriage. It's from God. It's from God, and, and Paul says, look, I wish that you were like I am. I have a freedom to do things that, that married people can't do. But each one is, has their own gift. I'm going to close by reading you a passage of Scripture that I think we're going to set in the forefront of all that we're going to talk about through this text. And I want you to listen, and then we're going to sing a song, and then I'm going to come up and finish. Just listen to this. And I want you to think about your marriage I want to think about your singleness. I want to think about your service to the Lord. Think about all those things. Don't think about your spouse or anyone else. Think about yourself as I read. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am becoming this noisy, gong, clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love is not, does not act unbecoming. Love doesn't seek after its own. Love does not provoke. Love does not keep an account of wrongs suffered against them. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And listen to this one. Love endures all things. If it's love from God, love never fails. But if they are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If they are gifts of tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, they will be done away with. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but I become a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known But now, faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. Father, we're in a tough passage. It's certainly a passage around the ascetic, really disgusting lifestyle that some were trying to have in Corinth. But the effects were on marriages and intimacy. In your Bible, your word that you chose to be inspired wants us to deal with this and look, look clearly at this. And so, Lord, we've attempted to do that today. And doubtlessly, Lord, what's arisen in our hearts is probably some failures. 
We're not maybe the husbands and wives we should be. Maybe we're not the single or the widowed or the divorced that we should be. So Lord, we know that you have made a way back to enjoy life with you and with others and even spouses. And so Lord, help us. Help us devise a plan from God's word how to get back to enjoy the things that you've given us. To love like you love us. I pray for those in this room who are hurt or hurting or who have hurt someone else. That you would do what no one else can do. I know, Lord, and there's probably people in here who so said this would take a miracle. But Lord, you still do miracles. You still repair where it seems unrepairable. So Lord, I ask that you would cause this church, Lord, to have marriages, to strive for godly marriages, to stay in the fight, to battle, to believe that you can do what we cannot do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us glorify you in all of our relationships, married, single, divorced, widowed, whatever we may be in, God, that we seek your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.